0: Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this
1: episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Simple Banadizi, a podcast for Morningstar Investment Management about the intersection of investing in behavioral science. I'm Philip Strail, Global Head of Research for Morningstar Investment Management. Today's podcast episode is from a previous webcast where our Select Equity Portfolio Managers share their reaction and insights to the 2021 Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting. Portfolio Specialist Jeff Wagner sits down with Mike Cordy, Morningstar, Investment Management's Head of Select Equity Portfolios, and Portfolio Manager of our Tortoise Portfolio, as well as Senior Portfolio Manager John Owens, who manages the select equity portfolios all-cap equity and small and mid-cap equity. Our experts will be discussing five key takeaways from the annual Berkshire Hathaway meeting. These topics are some that we feel investors should keep in mind in today's market environment.
2: Welcome to today's webcast. I'm Jeff Wagner, a portfolio specialist with Morningstar Investment Management. Today, I am joined by two portfolio managers of Morningstar Investment Management's Select Equity portfolios. Today, I have with me Mike Cordy. He is the head of U.S. Equity Strategies, who manages the Tortoise and Equity Income Portfolios. And also with me today is John Owens, who is a senior portfolio manager. He manages the all-cap equity uh, and small and mid-cap equity portfolios. Welcome to you both, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me.
3: Good to be here, Jeff.
4: Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Great Great to join you today.
2: All right, Uh, good deal. So the topic for today is 2021's Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting that took place this year on May 1st. As usual, the meeting featured Berkshire's Chairman and CEO Warren Buffett alongside his longtime Vice Chairman, Charlie Munger. Mike and John are going to be discussing some of their own insights about several of the themes that Buffett and Munger addressed during the event. All right. Let's get into our presentation here. Uh, Our first topic that we're going to address today is Robinhood. So if anybody on the line here is unfamiliar, uh, Robinhood is a new brokerage service that has gained a lot of attention by way of offering free trading uh, and an app that's, that's quite popular with younger and less experienced investors. Um, now, I'm not going to read the full quote here, um, but um, Warren likened the trading activity on Robinhood to to gambling, and Muffet, uh, Munger was uh, maybe even a bit more critical. So, John, I'll turn to you first. Uh, any thoughts on these takes from Buffett and Munger?
3: Yeah, well, Jeff, you know, Buffett and Munger uh, clearly didn't pull any punches here, and, and that's no surprise to us. Uh, They've often been pretty critical of Wall Street shenanigans, and I guess that now extends to to Silicon Valley misbehavior. Uh, as Munger said, you know they don't want Berkshire to profit from exploiting others. And as you may recall, uh, in a commentary back in February, we also expressed our reservations about Robin Hood's really gamification of investing. Uh, you know, like Buffett and Munger, we just don't see stocks as get rich quick schemes. And we think it's really unfortunate that Robinhood's app encourages its users, and Jeff, you, you mentioned that many of their users are novices, they're new to investing, and they're encouraging these folks to frequently trade stocks and even options and cryptocurrencies. Um, so how does Robinhood encourage their users to trade frequently? Well. They promised them free trades. They, they send out push notifications. And at one time, uh, they would shower bursts of digital confetti on the screens of their customers who had just made trades. And I, what I would say is that Morningstar Investment Management, you know, we won't treat the market like a casino with gambling chips. We're not going to treat it like a game of Candy Crush. You know, this is serious business to us, and, and we're going to stick to our philosophy and approach to an investing and we're going to look to build our client's wealth, not by frequently trading, but by being long-term owners of profitable and cash-generative
2: businesses. Yeah, I can see uh, by your description, I, I haven't used the app myself, but I see exactly what you mean by the, the gamification. Um, and, and when you compare that to our, our approach, it's, it's quite the opposite. Um, well, that's good. Uh, good comments about that. Thank you, John. Um, Next topic up for from um, the meeting is SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. Uh, they've also been uh, called blank check IPOs. Um, their popularity has surged over the past few quarters. Um, for some context here, SPACs raised more than five times the amount from investors in 2020 than they did in 2019. And we've already surpassed 2020's numbers, and we're only a quarter into 2021. So a lot of momentum behind the assets uh, in SPACs. Um, Now, Buffett focused in on um, kind of the holding period, the two-year period that they have to invest, um, and why Berkshire is less likely to find attractive valuations throughout this period and and valuations to that point, which he finds to be uh, rather extreme at this point. Mike, I'll turn to you for this one. Uh, what is Buffett getting at in his comments, and, and how does this impact Berkshire's business?
4: Thanks, thanks, Jeff. Good question. So, in terms of Berkshire, I think they've talked about in the past of making acquiring whole businesses, and they've been less active in this, um, whether large or small, acquiring large businesses. And I think it's competition from entities. Um, like private equity in the past, and now the SPAC, so it's not surprising that Buffett uh, raised questions about uh, this vehicle. And Charlie Munger's comments, which we don't show, uh, were even more critical. Um, you know, you know, Buffett's made it clear that it's another hurdle for Berkshire making a sizable acquisition. Um, you know, the incentive for these uh, for these SPACs it's it's often to make an investment without regard to price. They have a certain amount of time to get the money invested, um, and if they don't, the money. Basically, goes um, gets redistributed out. So there's a, there's an incentive um, to make an acquisition, and a lot of times uh, without regard to price. So Buffett's also in the past referred to private equity a little bit different there, but their ability to borrow cheap money uh, to make large large acquisitions. So um, you know, again, the idea with uh, the investment philosophy at Berkshire is that to be disciplined and patient in making these acquisitions. And it's hard to do that for them in this environment. Um, in our most recent focus on equities, we did question some of the frenzied activity we're seeing in these um, in these SPACs. You know, every every is different from, from the outside looking in. You know, uh, one, one thing that happened, uh, you know, during the first quarter at least, was there were cases where the price was getting bid up before there was any information about what company was going to be inside the SPAC. So um, again, just, just for us, just come maybe a little a sign that there's some speculation in p- parts of the market and, and Buffett uh, and Mungerson agree with that notion.
2: Yeah. That last point you made, Mike, it, it was actually news to me. I, I didn't think about the fact that the price of a, of a SPAC could get bid up before you even knew a company that they were going to be buying. So it's, you're just, but almost gambling on a gamble at that point. So that, that was an interesting point there. Yeah, in
4: certain cases. Yeah, not all, but it's, it's yeah, just, it's, they're all different. But it's just we just see the kind of that signs of kind of that fervor and that speculative activity in some cases here.
2: But yeah, that definitely qualifies. Um, so on the next topic, uh, we're going to talk about um, probably one of the more um, you know popular topics if you're reading market commentary these days: inflation. Um, Buffett commented several times about rising prices, so it sounds like he's clearly seeing inflation. John, uh, any comments on uh, on the meeting?
3: Sure. So, I mean, definitely inflation is picking up, Jeff, and I, I think we we all see that, right? If if you're going to the the grocery store, prices are higher. If you're at the gas station, prices are higher. There's a lot of help wanted signs outside. Uh, just. I think uh earlier today McDonald's announced that that they were increasing wages for uh the, for their employees, so uh inflation's picking up and, and Buffett said you know he saw that in his businesses and and he noted that in addition to raw material prices increases, he thinks wages are are likely to follow, and noted that unions you know will ne- renegotiate longer term contracts and so we might see increasing wages for a, a period of time. And you know we've, we see it in, in uh, government releases that, that wages are already on the rise, and we think this could just be the beginning. Um, now clearly, increasing costs aren't that, that's not good for the bottom line. that's not good for profits. But Buffett said that Berkshire was also raising prices, and this is a really, really important point. Companies like Berkshire with durable competitive advantages, are generally better uh, positioned to pass along the, the cost increases that they're incurring to their customers. And this is just one reason why, with our select equity portfolios, just one reason why we favor investing in companies with economic moats is they often possess that kind of pricing power, and that helps to protect their profits. Um, Mike, anything else to add here?
4: Uh, John, John, I think you covered most of it. I guess just one quick thought. Uh, I had to unmute myself. Um, the uh, the open question, I guess, is whether this period of inflation is more permanent or temporary because you know, obviously the supply chain, the supply chain bottlenecks has caused some of this. So it remains to be seen if if this is an issue that goes beyond next year. But we're currently we're reading a lot of that, about it now when we're um, reading the transcripts and hearing from the, the, the company earnings reports
2: yeah for sure that is the debate right now. Um, you know, I think uh, the Fed has their stance that it is more transitory, but uh, there are market participants out there that uh, seem to disagree. So yeah, we're going to be watching this play out for for uh, some time to come now. Um, all right, moving on from inflation. The next topic for today is Bitcoin, uh, which is another hot topic in the financial markets, as you know the price has uh, really, really. Uh, blown up um, in the past year or so, so I guess it's safe to say that Charlie Munger is not a big fan of cryptocurrency. John, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about <laughs> those comments here? <laughs> yeah,
3: that that's definitely right. And and Buffett was also in the meeting. He was also, uh, you know, he had previously been critical of cryptocurrencies and said he preferred to to dodge this question. But but Munger is often is the case. He, he didn't hold back at all. I guess this may be another case uh, of Berkshire kind of calling out some of the the misbehavior from from Silicon Valley. But let's, you know, from our perspective, let's take a step back. And at Morningstar Investment Management, one of our principles is is that we're valuation-driven investors. So what does that mean? Uh, Well, when we evaluate an investment, we compare the price of that investment to our estimate of its fair value, And that fair value is based on a discounted cash flow analysis. But unlike stocks and bonds, uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, uh, they don't generate dividends or coupon payments. So really, they they possess no intrinsic value on which to anchor our decisions. Um, You know, same could be said for gold. Uh, So we view cryptocurrencies as more speculative assets uh, they're only worth what the next person is willing to pay. And, and like Buffett uh, and Munger, I think we're just going to leave that speculation to others. Yeah, John, I think that's probably the best course of action for us
4: as well. Um, you know, I'd say we view the underlying blockchain technology as an interesting advancement. But in terms of offering any relevant insights into how to value um, an asset like Bitcoin that, do- that doesn't generate cash flow, it's just not... Um, we just don't have the expertise in that area.
2: And I think, yeah, I'll just add to that. The latest development there was uh, um, Elon Musk's uh, announcement the other day, right, that they're no longer going to be accepting Bitcoin for uh, their their cars. And he was, you know, I guess it was news to him how much uh, energy um, that uh, Bitcoin miners uh, were going through. So, right. yeah,
3: I, I mean, well, and. He was famously on Saturday Night Live last weekend and was asked about a cryptocurrency. And he said it was a hustle. Maybe we should just take him at his work.
2: <laughs> That's right. So he's done a bit of a 180 there, I suppose. Um, so moving on from Bitcoin, uh, the next topic up uh, from the annual meeting is uh, Berkshire versus the S&P 500 index. Um, so this one, um, I actually wasn't as familiar with this topic before uh, I was getting ready for today, but... You know, I guess in the past Buffett has made some positive comments about the merits of investing in a in a broad based index such as the s and p five hundred um, but it looks like there's more to this comment than is on the surface so uh Mike, maybe if you could uh, elaborate a little bit what what did Buffett mean by that when he said uh, said that about the s and p sure um just just for um just for some context um,
4: you know thinking he talks about uh, um his widow here uh, and, and what would happen um, it, when he passes. But it, he's indicated upon his death that the full, the vast majority of his estate, 99% of his estates will be held in Berkshire shares and, you know, sold over a 12 year period to fund the various the charitable donations that he's, uh, that he's signed up for. So um, I, I, I think here, you know, in terms of S&P 500, I think in the past, you know, Buffett's, um, uh, his, you know, he's not going to ever really tout Berkshire, but, uh, um, you know, obviously clearly he, um, if you follow his actions, he's a big believer, obviously he's built this business for, for decades, but, um, you know, he's more inclined for mentioning the S&P 500 is a good choice, um, for people that want to take a passive approach to investing. Um, he's made those comments in the past, so. I think one one other thing for me, and I'll let John chime in too, is um, I don't I just think stepping back, I don't think there's a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs that would pass the opportunity to kind of pitch their stock, um, whether it's on its own or versus like an S&P 500. So I think it's pretty rare. Um, yeah, it's pretty conservative in the way he talks about investing. It. Um, but John, anything bad?
3: yeah mike I, that is rare and and while buffett uh won't tout its own stock i would say that that we currently favor berkshire stock over the s&p 500 uh today berkshire is a, a top holding in all cap equity and in equity income and, and tortoise portfolios uh we we agree with munger's quote here that's shown on the slide that that the berkshire collection of businesses are are just clearly better than the average business in the S&P 500 in our view. You know, Plus, what we think Berkshire, given its unique culture, uh, will continue to allocate capital better than the average business as well. So that's another important point. And then also uh, Berkshire's balance sheet is one of the strongest balance sheets out there in, in our view. And, w- and we just don't think these advantages are sufficiently priced into the shares of Berkshire Hathaway whereas the broader market to us appears, you know, maybe fully valued, maybe even rich, uh, in our view. So for these reasons, uh, we like the shares over the S and P 500 by a long shot, I'd say.
2: Yeah. And we are going to get into, uh, in, 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 two slides from now or so, we're going to get into a little bit more of, of the holdings in, in Berkshire, for example, but, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about it being, um, you know, diversified in of itself. Um, all right. Uh, moving on from that topic. Uh, next up is share repurchases. Um, so this was addressed during the meeting, and it came from a question um, about a prominent senator who criticized share buybacks uh, as market manipulation. Uh, and I'm actually going to read Munger's quote here because I, uh, I think it's a good one. He said, if you're, if you're repurchasing stock just to pull it higher, it's deeply immoral. But if you're repurchasing stock because it's a fair thing to do in the interest of your existing shareholders, it's a highly moral act. And the people who are criticizing it are bonkers. So he's really differentiating, you know, between the reasons for share buybacks. John, maybe if you could elaborate that on that just a bit more.
3: Yeah, I, well, I think we agree with with Buffett and Munger here. And again, let's let's take a step back and talk about uh, capital allocation for companies. Uh, when companies generate cash from their operations, they have multiple choices. So they can boost their cash holdings. They can reduce their debt. Uh, they can reinvest back to, into the businesses. Uh, they can make an acquisition. Uh, they can pay a dividend or they can repurchase stock. And, and more often what we see is companies do a combination of these actions. Uh, really, the choice depends on several factors. You know, what kind of financial shape is a business in? What types of opportunities do they have to reinvest? And, and what, you know, where's the share price trading uh, relative to its intrinsic value? And I'd say in the case of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, the balance sheet, as I mentioned before, it, it's rock solid in our view. So there's not really a reason to boost cash further at this point for Berkshire or to reduce debt. Uh, and they're also making big investments in their underlying businesses, especially the utility business, uh, the railroad business. Uh, so they're but in spite of that, they still have excess cash flow. Um, kind of unfortunately, as, as Mike discussed earlier in, in the discussion with SPACs for Berkshire today, there's not a lot of opportunities to make value creating acquisitions in today's market. Um Berkshire is simply not going to uh, overpay for an acquisition and destroy value. Uh, so what does that leave us? That leaves us with share repurchases and dividends. Uh, well, our view is, is that Berkshire stock is, is trading below uh, its intrinsic value. That's, that's our opinion. And, and given that it's trading below its intrinsic value, uh, we would you know, wholeheartedly endorse share repurchases uh, over a dividend and and we think that uh, that uh, Berkshire also has has a good long tr- long term track record on this. Uh, Berkshire has been increasing its share repurchases last year and, and, and this year. but in years past, uh, when they had investment opportunities, they would much rather uh, make acquisitions that were uh, you know that could create more value than buying back the shares. Uh, so depending on the circumstances, uh, Buffett's going to allocate and Berkshire's going to allocate capital in the manner that they think is best for their shareholders. And, and they have a very good track record of doing that. Yeah, those are, those are great
4: points, John. I think just, I think you know, Buffett in the past, they've been hesitant to repurchase their shares, even though they've been consistently discounted. I think just the lack of opportunities, um, has really kind of highlighted the share repurchases for Berkshire, especially in the past year. Um, and what we appreciate as shareholders is, is the fact that they're, you know, they're thoughtful in terms of maintaining patience and discipline when, when making deals. Now some, it wasn't a huge deal, but last year Berkshire did acquire uh, the Dominion Energy, natural gas transmission and uh, storage uh, business. And we think those assets kind of fit nicely within Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Um, but aside from unique deals like this, it's, you know, these share repurchases for now, at least we think it's the most likely, and in our opinion, the best use of the cash given the, the, the other opportunities in today's market environment. Uh, then one, one quick uh, follow-up to the nuanced point, but sometimes as long-term investors, we prefer to see less appreciation in the Berkshire shares, given that they're, they've are they been in the process of, of of making the repurchases. You know, it seems counterintuitive, but... Um, if they're buying their shares at a greater discount to intrinsic value, that that's value for us as long-term shareholders. It's, we're not treated in and out of the stock.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting. I I, I think I've thought of that before, Mike. But uh, the way you put it there makes a lot of sense. There's there's definitely different ways for Berkshire to add value. Um, and given where their shares are trading today, you know, maybe uh, and given the lack of opportunity that they're seeing out there. Uh, it doesn't seem like such a bad idea to repurchase shares. Um, so, with that, let's move on to the last uh, topic up for today that we're covering from this annual meeting: um, big tech stocks and valuation impact from low interest rates. Um, so, they had a bit a a bit to say about this, um, and it's um, I would say this, this is probably where um, you know you can see two different lines of reasoning coming from their comments, but overall. Buffett sounded quite positive on big tech stocks given today's low interest rates. John, what did you hear uh, uh, in, in some more detail there?
3: Yeah, and they're not only talking the talk, but they're walking the walk. Um, Jeff, I, you know, Apple by far remains Berkshire's uh, top stock holding. So Buffett definitely believes that that big tech stock is worthy of investment. Um, he did recently trim just a bit of that stake in Apple, but. Uh, but then Buffett acknowledged over the course of the meeting that that that, that trimming that position may have been a mistake. We'll, we'll see. Time will tell. But I'd say as far as our select equity portfolios, we, we, too, see value in some but not all mega cap tech stocks. Uh, you know, just because they fit nicely in a catchy acronym doesn't mean that they're all the same. Um, we don't own Apple directly in our portfolios, but. Uh, we do, through our investment in Berkshire, uh, in all-cap equity and, and tortoise and equity income, and most of our portfolios own a couple other mega-cap tech stocks, or more in the case of the, the hair portfolio, which focuses more on growth companies, and I also note that according to the analyst at Morningstar, um, you know, they, in their view, many of the big tech stocks per uh, possess wide economic moats, those durable competitive advantages. And according to those analysts, some, not all, currently trade below their fair value estimates. So I'd say that in our view, we agree with Buffett. Some of these are incredible cash generative companies, and some of the valuations are attractive, especially given the current level of interest rates. I don't know, Mike, do you have anything to add here? No, John and you covered it well. Maybe on your last point,
4: the level of interest rates. I think that's um, uh, that, that's something we should keep in mind. Well, very low versus uh, where they've been historically. Now that could change, and interest rates can move higher. You know, interest rates aren't aren't frozen in time. Um, and so, you know, and Buffett spent a fair amount of time talking about the, that impact on, on on the valuations with low rates, but obviously. Um, I don't think he's uh, making any kind of interest rate forecast um, and going back to kind of our select equity portfolios, you know, we don't pin an investment thesis on the future of interest rates, whether they stay low or move higher. Um, you know, it's, it's just something we don't, we don't pretend to have any special insight into the direction of interest rates. Um, so I just say when, with our focus portfolios, we've got, we need to have a diversified portfolio that can be robust in multiple scenarios and, you know, these interest rates are just one macro factor that can influence kind of near-term prices. But again, we're not, we don't have any special insight into that. So it was kind of interesting how the interest
2: rates kind of tied in with the valuations. And Buffett talked about the, the big tech stocks. Yep. And interest rates and inflation are always top of mind uh, for investors, aren't they? <laughs> um all right, so now we have uh, a couple uh, of things. These are slides are from what are taken from Buffett showed at the start of the meeting. So we're kind of going in reverse order here, but uh, we thought these were interesting to point out. Um, you know, what are we looking at, uh, Mike? And, and why do you think Buffett chose to show uh, these slides? And maybe just a bit of an explanation about what we're looking at here.
4: Sure. Yeah, we'll give you my my interpretation at least. Um, so here's a list and. Like you said, these are the top uh, 20 companies in the world that uh, measured by market capitalization. Um, and so just kind of borrowing from what Buffett did at the meeting. if you, you know, take a look at this list and, um, and then maybe try to make a like a mental estimate of how many of these companies will be on a similar list of the top 20, 30 years from now. Uh, you know I think he referred to these current set of companies as the um, the current powder powerhouses. Um, so let, let's let's move on to the next slide. And so this one goes back a little more than thirty years and looks at the basically the top twenty um, from from 1989. Um, and you can kind of scan the list quickly, but I'll I'll uh, give away the punchline: none of these companies on, on this list from 1989 are on the current list. Um, so I think one of the points. Buffett's making is it just, just as we're so sure um, sure of ourselves today. If you went back in time 30 years ago, I think there was a, the, the current investors. A lot of the community would kind of think that oh these are these are the winners. Um, you know these are powerhouse companies um, and, and they're going to remain that way. Um, I think the, the, the general point is the world can change um, in dramatic ways, especially um, the further you go out in time. Um, just a couple other notes here, uh, you know, Buffett, when he, um, you know, he's a teacher and he, Buffett's always been a teacher and willing to share his insights. And he got that from a student of Ben Graham, who's a legendary value investor. So it's sometimes when Buffett makes these comments, it's kind of doing it, just instructing and there's been a lot of new investors that have come into the markets, uh, whether it's through Robin hood or more standard means, like over the past, you know, I guess 12 months or so. And so he, he before he showed the slide that he referenced the wanting to talk to new entrants in the stock market um, to kind of ponder this a bit before they make 30 to 40 trades a day to profit what it looks like from the music games, paraphrasing what he said there. Um, I think the broader message is that circumstances can change the dominant industries or companies from today. Um, you know, they, they may not stay that way indefinitely. Um, and that's and it's kind of hard to me- remember with a historical perspective. So I think what he's maybe trying to highlight is, especially for new investors, um, that are looking at the current winners, just to keep in mind that that's, um, may not always stay that way forever. Um, and then I think, um, uh, if we just go back one slide just to show the current list, um, and scanning this, I'll make a, another, uh, quick observation. So. If you take a look at this list of 20, I calculated that seven of the 20 companies did not exist in 1989. And then three of these 20, uh, the business existed, but not in the current form. as uh, a publicly traded stock. Now, Visa and MasterCard, they were networks owned by a, a large consortium group of banks, um, and kind of shared ownership. And obviously, it was a much smaller business. So those weren't publicly traded stocks in the Saudi uh, Aramico, of course, you know, those oil wells have been around for a long time. But that wasn't uh, that wasn't an investment option that was open uh, 30 years ago. Um, that kind of just bleeds into for us, you know, one of the longstanding themes that we have in, when we're researching companies is disruptions always lurking you know, the world's always changing, but, you know, but then on the other side, sometimes disruption can be overplayed and uh, there can be stocks that are, that are good values that get assumed that, um, that they're going to be overly disrupted and it's more than reflected in the price. And we try to take advantage of those opportunities, but it's, it's more of an art than a science, but we definitely, definitely try to pay, pay attention to the current fundamentals of the business. And, and we're really always focused on what a business is going to look like five or 10 years from now, I'm not too worried about the next quarter.
3: Um,
4: John, I had a lot to say there, but anything to add?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think those were some great insights, Mike. And, and I'd say that, you know, when when you're evaluating investments, you got to think about risk and reward. And one way to manage risk is to diversify across various industries and sectors. So if, if, you, if in 1989, you put all your chips into Japanese and industrial bank stocks, that would have been a really poor decision. You know, you'd be, you would have been better off investing across a variety of uh, industries and sectors and geographies. Uh, on this note, I think it's interesting to, to kind of look at how, how is Berkshire's investments positioned today? So as I mentioned earlier, Apple is uh, Berkshire's top stock holding, Uh, but Berkshire also owns several financials like Bank of America, American Express, U.S. Bank Corp., and that's just to name a few. They also own consumer defensive companies like Coca-Cola and Kraft Heinz. Uh, They own telecom, industrial, energy, and healthcare stocks. And, and we're, this doesn't even mention uh, Berkshire's privately held companies, which includes insurance, railroad, utility, engineering, manufacturing, and other businesses. And in fact, the private businesses and the cash position uh, make up the bulk of Berkshire's intrinsic value. So, so Berkshire is well diversified. And I'd say, you know, we're at Morningstar Investment Management and our select equity portfolios, we're focused investors, You know, we definitely like to invest in our highest conviction ideas, but like Buffett, you know, we're not going to bet the farm on a single stock, industry, or sector. So in our equity portfolios, we're typically investing in 20 to 40 stocks, again, across a variety of industries and sectors, and, and we think that provides for sufficient diversification while still giving us the opportunity to hopefully outperform over the long run.
4: Yeah, John. Um, I'm really glad you raised that issue of, of risk versus reward and, and diversification. Um, so I a few final points, and, and we'll kind of end the the, the slide uh, portion of the presentation. Just just a stepping back in terms of like what did the message about these slides mean, and just just the overall meaning. I think I think another lesson here is when we listen to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, it's it's, it's important to remember to Prudent to be humble, you know, just as individuals and as investors. Um, you know, and I think back to the the final question they got in the Q and A session this year. You know, about lessons they learned in the past year, and and Buffett said he should have listened more to Charlie. Um, and Munger's answer was that if, if you're not a little confused about uh, what's going on, you know, you know, you don't understand it. And so, but I I think someone like Munger is very bright and intelligent, and has, has read history and has been an investor. For 50 years, he probably understands more than most, but I think he's willing to acknowledge that, uh, you know, he doesn't have all the answers. And I think that's important. Um, that's just something to keep in mind. You know, the humble answers that come from 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 these two uh, wise investors, they, they stand in contrast to some of the talking heads we often see on the financial news that send, seem to have a, a strong opinion on the daily movements of an individual stock or the economy, uh, or a piece of economic data. Um, So we didn't include the comments about the Berkshire Hathaway businesses in the presentation, but I think for for John and I, another benefit of of, of the annual meeting, obviously, is we get insights into Berkshire as a business, as a company, given it's a large holding in our portfolio. So it's it's a very informative um, annual tradition we have to to tune into the meeting.
2: And and so with that, uh, I'll, I'll leave it there and hand it back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. Um, and it is, you know, it's just interesting that, uh, you know, we covered such a broad range of topics today. That wasn't even everything that they talked about at the annual meeting, right? So it's, it's really a valuable uh, resource. And, and surely the, there's a lot of attendees, whether it's in person or probably more virtual uh, this year. But um, as Mike said, that does wrap up our presentation for today. Um, and so now we're going to go ahead and get into answering some of your questions. Um, so I've got a couple queued up here. First one, um, you know, the, about the succession plan. Uh, this was announced after the meeting. Um, could you guys maybe give us some of the key takeaways there? Sure.
4: Um, yeah, I can, I can address that. So,
2: um,
4: so just a little context. So Greg Abel and Ajit Jane, uh, those two were considered to be likely successors to take over the CEO role for Buffett, um, and then three years ago, uh, both of those gentlemen were named as, as, as vice chairman, Abel for the non-insurance part of the business, and then uh, Jane for the uh, vice chairman of, on the insurance side. And so Charlie Munger, he did let it slip in answering a, a question about culture that, that he basically said Greg will keep the culture. Um, and I think that was kind of unprompted. and It was, seemed at the time a clear reference to the fact that Greg Abel would eventually be taking over as the CEO. Um, and then two days after the meeting, Warren Buffett kind of acknowledged um, as such that, that he would succeed uh, uh, as CEO if Buffett should should, uh, should leave in the near term. So I think, you know, we're glad that succession has been laid out. There's been a lot of time to do it. Now, clearly, we're selfishly hoping that Buffett and Munger are able to serve in their roles as long as their health allows. But we just don't know how obviously, we don't know how long that's going to be. Um, so I think. The Berkshire shareholders have been really fortunate um, for, for their longevity, in essence, um, because there's been a really long window for for Buffett and the board of directors to plan for succession. It's been a question for a long time. Um, and I think just with these, you know, the fortunate these years of good uh, good physical and mental health, they've had time to really plan for this. Um, so as I said, Abel and Jane, these two vice chairmen, they've been really, I think, from the outside looking in, they've been really kind of running the operations and, and Buffett's had a little bit, maybe less of a hands-on role. So they've had some kind of just kind of training on the job while Buffett's still around. Then um, the two investors, uh, Ted Weschler and Todd Combs, they've been in these investment management roles uh, within Berkshire for, for about a decade now with, uh, with Buffett and Munger there to kind of offer their wisdom. So in general, we're, we're pleased with the succession Probably wasn't a huge surprise that this was the way it was going to shake out, but now it's been more formally announced. And I think the the key point is um, looking at Berkshire over the you know for the long term perspective, you know we have confidence that the culture is going to remain. And, and one of the tenets of that is minimal bureaucracy and really keeping the shareholders front of mind in, in terms of running the business. So um, so so we're optimistic about the
2: succession and what Berkshire is going to look like in the future. Well, thanks for that answer Mike I think that um, that covers that one uh, next question up for today uh, some of Berkshire's recent moves like selling airlines uh, have not gone well uh, is capital allocation at Berkshire still strong yeah I, I can
3: take that question and uh, you know Buffett's a straight shooter and he acknowledged uh, over the course of the meeting making several mistakes as as he's acknowledged and in past meetings and in past letters to shareholders. Uh, in, in this most recent meeting, uh, airlines were discussed, and, and, and Buffett also uh, mentioned the acquisition of uh, precision cast parts as being a mistake. And as we discussed earlier, Buffett thought maybe it was a mistake to trim Apple recently. Um, but Buffett had some interesting perspectives on, on, on these mistakes. and, he even noted, if you go back to to the company's origin, that the three original businesses. So we had Berkshire Hathaway was originally a textile company, uh, and then they acquired a department store, and then they uh, blue chip stamps were, were the three original businesses for Berkshire Hathaway, and ultimately uh, all of those businesses failed. And uh, I think you know what Buffett made a a good point was that that Berkshire isn't defined by its mistakes rather it's defined by its successes uh, and and there's been some huge successes like Geico uh, Burlington northern mid-american energy uh, there's been huge successes uh, in uh, the stock investments including you know most recently uh, Apple uh, was uh, and, and that was a real interesting one because you know for years Buffett had mentioned that uh, technology w- was sort of outside of his circle of competence. Uh, so it's impressive to see Buffett uh, even into his 90s adapting with the times and expanding his uh, circle of competence and made a very large stock investment in Apple, uh, which over uh, that over the period that he's owned it has, has turned out very well. But in investing, uh, nobody bats a thousand. We all make our share of mistakes. I think the key is to learn from them, try not to repeat them. Hopefully, uh, your winners more than make up for your losers. And that's certainly been the case uh, for Berkshire Hathaway over its uh, longer history. And we we think that'll probably continue to be the case going forward. Yeah, that's exciting. I would, <laughs> that's I would still give uh, Warren Buffett an A++ on capital allocation over the decade, <laughs> even, even with a few mistakes there.
2: Yeah, I don't think many would argue with you there, but uh, it is insightful to just to compare, you know, even, you know, many, somebody, money considered to be the best investor, the greatest investor of our time, Um, you know, some of his early investments are the ones that didn't play out. So, Um, all right, next question up for you guys. Uh, Why does Berkshire hold these annual meetings but refuse to do earning calls like most companies do?
4: Yeah, that's, um, you, know, you know, Berkshire is unique. Um, so I I would say just thinking about that question, I think a couple of reasons come to mind. I think they're focused on the long-term. You know, they're not uh, overly focused on their quarterly results. Um, you know, business results can move quarter to quarter. There's not a lot of insight into one quarter's results. But I think maybe the second point is, I think the, the view of individual shareholders as their audience, not necessarily the, the Wall Street analysts that are kind of looking for short-term news to plug into their models for the next quarter. Um, you know, I think in this year's meeting, it goes, I think Buffett mentioned the reason they released their 10Q, their quarterly financial statements uh, on a Saturday morning. And I think Buffett said something to the effect: it's not because the media wants them to do it or the analysts want them to do it because they think, for the shareholders that are really interested in learning the business it gives them, you know, a lot of time to digest the, the earnings, um, and made reference that, you know, if you really want to understand the nuts and bolts of Berkshire, you probably should spend an hour or two reading 10Q, um, you know, on, on the flip side, you know, um, uh, not passing judgment on companies on the, earn, on the earnings calls and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of just become a staple of kind of corporate America. But I do think that some some companies, um, they put a lot of time and effort into the quarterly earnings calls. And that's and that's because they're focused on the quarterly numbers. And it's kind of a short-term race and scripting out a message to investors. I think that can bleed into the overall culture of the company and you get focused on near-term results. Uh, maybe at the sacrifice of making good long-term decisions about the business. So I think it's sometimes a slippery slippery slope with companies that are maybe overly focused on the quarterly numbers. Um, That's that's all I had. Sean, anything to add on that one?
3: Uh, No, nothing to add here. Okay.
2: All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Um, Next question up. Um, And this one is about Apple. Um, so we can probably address this maybe at a high level. Um, you know, why, uh, the question is why is Morningstar not invested in Apple in the select equity portfolios over these many years versus Berkshire having Apple as their number one position?
3: Yeah, well, I would say it's, it's a sin of omission. Um, you know, Apple has, uh, per- performed, uh, exceptionally well. We do have, uh, indirect exposure through Berkshire. Berkshire is a big position in our portfolio, so we may have benefited a little bit on, on the margin. But, uh, you know, like we were just saying earlier, uh, you know, no one bats a thousand in investing. We, we all make our, our share of mistakes. I think when you look at Apple, I think we probably underestimated the ability of the company to morph from a hardware company to a software company and to build such a, a strong ecosystem and brand that that, that, stood uh, the test of time for many years. We, in the past, we've seen other technology companies with hardware, you know, before Apple there was Blackberry and uh, you know, there were uh, other uh, technologies in the past, like Sony was one of the top technology companies and, and Apple has defied the odds and uh, And credit to, to the company uh, and credit to the management team. Uh, but you know we uh you know i would say that that we've made investments in other companies uh mega cap tech companies that uh that we've held for many years uh and, and we've been pleased pleased with those but uh i don't know mike do you have anything else to add i mean i i've apple and costco i would say would be kind of two of my biggest sins of omission as a portfolio manager that really not me but what do you think mike yeah those i
4: have a similar view on those i think um I think in the past we've owned Apple and a few of the strategies, but I think we've ended up selling as um, you know, the price moved around. So we haven't been long-term owners of Apple's, and it's been many years since we've owned Apple and the strategies. And that's definitely a sin of omission. Um, and to John's point, you know, you know, we don't bat a thousand. I think you have to kind of look at, um, you know, when you look at stocks that have done well, um, you know, you have to recognize that <clears throat> there were better times to buy it, but that doesn't mean. Then we're just still focused on price and intrinsic value, and I think across the portfolios, that's one we haven't owned. But to, to John's point, I think we've owned some of these other mega cap companies where we've kind of um, maybe ha- had a better understanding of, of the, the price versus intrinsic value and the discount
3: uh, that was there. So, um, good question. Yeah. And we are, and we are focused investors, right? Typically, we're owning twenty to forty stocks. Our eligible universe is thousands of stocks. Uh, and so, some of those thousands of stocks are going to do quite well, and and we're just going to miss out. It's just the nature of having a focused portfolio, but but we prefer to have that focus. We prefer to invest in our highest conviction ideas, and and hopefully our our, our winners outnumber our losers, and and we perform well for our clients. Yeah, and I'd say yeah. If, if if Apple traded, you know, if,
4: if the circumstances changes, so some of the large cap tech stocks that we own in some of the strategies if the price um, gets high versus the intrinsic value, those can get trimmed or sold. And if, 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 it go kind of goes in reverse for Apple in terms of our view, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a constant decision um, to kind of weigh, what we think the business is worth versus the price. And so that's kind of an ongoing thing. And uh, we'll kind of see what happens in the future.
3: We do, it's a great point, Mike, because we, we do agree, right? That it, Apple is a phenomenal business. Oh yeah. We would, yeah, we would like to own it at the right price. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. There's things that, in terms of the
4: pricing power and the consumer stickiness and maybe the non hardware part of the business that we,
2: that we underestimated. Yep. Yeah. yeah. For sure, Apple has defied the odds for the business that they're in. And and to your guys's point, we uh, you know our we, are, we have concentrated portfolios. We are not going to mimic the ben- the benchmark, right? So we're not going to own all the companies out there, but, um, we'll stay focusing, focused on what we do best. Um, next question up for you guys. Um, and this is a, it's a tough question. What would you say to a client that asks you if he or she should put money in Berkshire versus Morningstar portfolios?
4: I'll take do, it quite Do both. Do both. We own Berkshire. Yeah, if you own it. And some of our portfolios, you'll own Berkshire. So <laughs> you, that's can all kill that. Two, you can kill yeah. two birds with one stone. Um, I'll let John um, Yeah. follow up with me. The only other thing I'll say is we talk about diversification. So, in terms of putting all your eggs in the one basket, I would say stepping aside putting the robustness of our portfolios versus the Berkshire business. We're just more comfortable with people owning portfolio as a portfolio of stocks as opposed to one individual security. I think that's kind of an underlying message that we would have on that one.
3: Right. And I think that's the key point that Mike said. We we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. Berkshire is, a, uh, <laughs> is an egg that's very well diversified in and of itself. Uh, but you know who knows what could happen you know the insurance business could be hit by uh, unprecedented claims there you know there uh, there there are things uh, bad things something sometimes happen to the, the best of companies and the best of management teams and so there's a reason why our portfolios uh, have a position in Berkshire, but, uh, you know, we've, we've capped how much that we're willing to invest in Berkshire to get the benefits of diversification across more companies, across more industries. Yeah. And I'd say to, um, just a quick
4: follow up in terms of just the whole eggs in one basket, I think in terms of uh, it's kind of the way investor attitude and, uh, psychology, um, an individual stock, even one diversified like Berkshire might move more than a, a portfolio stock. So it's, Said, again, setting the Berks, specifically Berkshire, just choose another stock. I think to have and that as a large holding, um, just in terms of being able to handle any fluctuations that come with the price on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. I think uh, most people would be better off in a portfolio. Um, that there's probably just going to be less kind of individual movement of you know say thirty to forty stocks versus
2: one stock kind of diversification embedded within diversification. I like it. Um, Well, thank you so much to you both. Uh, That's all the questions that we have. So I'm going to call the webinar for today. Um, Thanks again, Mike and John, for sharing your insights with us.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Keep an eye out for new episodes coming this summer. In the meantime, you can check out mp.morningstar.com for more investment insights and learn more about our Morningstar managed portfolios. Bye for now.
0: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.